Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Marshall here on the Neil Garfield Show, and today is October 3rd, 2019. Neil will be back next week, and in the meantime, we are going to discuss today uh, trends in appellate practice, trends in appellate litigation in California. We'll also be touching on some related aspects. Uh, there are some recent developments in unlawful detainer litigation that are certainly worth mentioning as pluses considering the actual appellate litigation environment in California is still not trending uh, particularly favorably for borrowers uh, for plaintiffs and non-judicial foreclosure lawsuits. Nevertheless, there are some developments. I'll be talking a bit about a couple of cases, and they're kind of indirectly related to uh, chain of title. They are really being decided uh, principally on other grounds and the chain of title argument in the opinion is mostly disregarded or essentially finessed. So the decision is really made on other grounds. And I will say in a quick preface uh, that as I pointed out on this show, unfortunately multiple times, the ability to get these wins, as modest as they are, to state appellate cases, both from earlier this year, the ability to get them published is really quite daunting. These were readily published, uh, except it's rare when there's an outright chain of title win, at least to some extent, it's an outright win, and that would be Ivanova is a good example. Sharada is a good example. Those decisions both coming down in 2016. Uh, there were some issues in publishing there. And remember, Glaske was depublished uh, before it was then republished, going all the way back to uh, 2013-14. So, uh, as always, uh, I'm broadcasting live 
and typically, not always, but typically, as today from Southern California. And this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated uh, by Neil and by myself on behalf of Neil. And you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. So this whole issue of being able to cite published appellate opinions, uh, it really is a big deal. Uh, for instance, where where a case is cited for publishing, then you're able to use it in a robust way. Of course, there will still be limitations as to how significantly you can apply it in a certain case or a certain context for the purpose of a certain argument. Nevertheless, it's going to be generally available. Uh, to give a counterexample where we have a pretty robust chain of title win, and here we need to go all the way back to May of 2018. So we're going on a year and a half at this point. Uh, this is a case that was not published, uh, Gray versus LaSalle Bank. Now, with all these case sites, I will be providing these to Neil later, and we'll see if uh, we have the opportunity to get these updated to future blog posts. In any event, typically you can you can look online, whether it's Google Scholar or some other essentially portal, even using DuckDuckGo if you happen to use that search engine. The power of Internet search, uh, I think, is continuing to accelerate. There are a lot of product placement ads and that type of thing, so there's kind of white noise out there when you do searches. But the ability to find case references and even be able to pull opinions and other pleadings offline, often for free, we are in an era where that is expanding, even at this juncture. So at least for now, that ability is expanding. And again, that case is Gray versus LaSalle Bank. It's out of the 6th Appellate District in California, essentially Southern California, uh, to the uh, Orange County, San Diego area way. And in this opinion, one of the notable uh, aspects to it is in, in all unpublished opinions you're supposed to see this disclaimer but you won't necessarily however here it's right here on page one uh, it's referenced as a notice not to be published in official reports and then it refers to California rules of court rule 8.11 15a which is very narrow I won't get into the details of that the listeners are welcome to look that up. And what this indicates is a part 
from some narrow exceptions which are outlined in Rule 8.1115B, you are prohibited and parties are, are prohibited. Well, let's put it this way. Courts and parties are prohibited from, quote, unquote, citing or relying on opinions not certified for publication or ordered published. And as here, this was essentially ordered not published. Uh, this opinion has not been certified for publication or ordered published for the purposes of Rule 8.1115. Now, this was a pretty robust ruling on behalf of uh, the chain of title line of arguments. I, I won't go into the details because this opinion was not published, therefore its utility is quite blunted. I will say, though, uh, as one aspect that's notable about the case, I'll be talking a little bit about, more about this issue later today. Uh, but there is uh, a kind of aspect to these cases, and it won't surprise listeners that this is the case, and it won't surprise listeners that this is my take, that this is the case. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about how just as judges will often use narrow interpretations of legal procedure and fine distinctions in law, but so will appellate courts. And in this particular case, there's a lot of uh, fine legal parsing about the iterations of complaints. There's a initial complaint, there's an amended complaint, and there's a reference to the amended complaint essentially obviating, eliminating the, the need for the appellate court to review the demure below. Uh, this, this does relate to a, an aspect of judicial economy and appeal. If you have limited resources, and arguably for the purpose of focusing the appellate court, there is an argument based on this opinion to focus on the latest iteration of the complaint and really try to get the reversal there when you're appealing an unfavorable non-judicial foreclosure decision. Uh, I think the problem there, though, is when you have several iterations of complaints. I mean, I've had some cases where there may be four or five generations of amended complaints, and uh, the later generations will often narrow not just the issues but the causes of action. So when appealing, ideally, one would want to have the option of appealing the entire uh, dismissal or whatever prevailed below, whether it was the sustaining of a demure on behalf of the uh, defendant lenders or whether it was uh, sustaining a motion for summary judgments, essentially uh, finding that that was satisfied, again, from the same lenders or the institutional defendants in these foreclosure cases here in California, motions for summary judgment are routinely filed. When we do get rulings on our side overruling the tender, now, of course, they're not filed right away. Often discovery will be done. The, the case will often be set for trial. Months will pass. 
And then after the discovery period, you will often see in these cases a motion for summary judgment. So what this court found was, well, they didn't need to review the original complaints because the first admitted complaints, they're basically saying in their opinion. Uh, I don't want to use the word nullify, but I think it's a kind of uh, maybe in a colloquial usage, it did kind of nullify the need to review the actual original complaints. So said this court in the sense that by amending the complaint, particularly in its entirety, the plaintiff litigant is conceding the arguments of the other side. I don't see why that should be legally operative that way. It seems to me there's grounds for quite a bit of parsing there where the court doesn't have to come to the conclusion that, oh, we know our arguments suck. That's why we're amending the complaint. The plaintiff's take on their own complaint and how legitimate they might consider it might be a lot more nuanced and might be a lot more subject to parsing, even where, even if they amend their complaint. But not according to the appellate court. You amend your complaints, you essentially discarded your previous complaint for appellate review. So I'll talk a bit more about that later in today's show. Uh, the chain of title aspects, I, I do want to bring, and this is an aside, but it's an important one. I'd love to point to a really robust appellate decision here in California in 2019. It's just an outright win, particularly on the uh, sort of full board development of chain of title analysis. Uh, what I can do is reference a lower court uh, minute order. It's actually uh, involving an unlawful detainer case. And it's involving a case here in San Diego. And I will give a shout out to Stephen Lopez, who uh, handled the uh, defense of the unlawful detainer action on behalf of the on behalf of the uh, client in that matter. And the short case name is Nation Star Mortgage versus Park. That is available on Neil's blog. You can see uh, a full write-up on Neil's blog regarding that case. And it's a powerful case because it does affirm at the end of the day that even where title is not looked at in a full-blown way, which you will routinely see in California in all of Tanner cases, that judges and courts will say they're not going to look at title in a full-blown way. Nevertheless, where the defendant presents what amounts to a highly developed uh, line of argument with supporting authority and supporting facts and uh, evidence, to show chain of title in that case is not justified. And to show that the UD plaintiff is not properly authorized to pursue uh, the unlawful tenure eviction, there is a lot of argument here, and it's, it's absolutely an opinion worth worth visit, visiting. 
it relies quite a bit on Bella versus Hudgens, which goes all the way back to 1977. And there are some more recent cases cited here. I will say there are no case sites from 2019. And at least to my recollection, I don't see any from 2018. It does rely quite a bit on Ivanova and some related cases. Nevertheless, it does find that where there are sufficient uh, bona fides about the problems with title presented in the unlawful detainer case, such that those can be seen as voiding title, not merely not creating a situation where the chain of assignment problems are merely voidable. Where you can show, show voidness, and of course that's a complex matter, uh, you can check the opinions, you get a little more insight on what that court is looking at. Nevertheless, it does reaffirm that you can get uh, judges still, even at this late date, to find that there are void uh, chain of title issues in unlawful detainer cases. And that's a really tough ask here in California. Would that we could transfer this whole judicial decision into the appellate realm in total without any intervening uh, steps. But, of course, the process doesn't work that way. So one one place where there is some development that's more favorable in the uh, judicial foreclosure arena here in California relates to breach of contract issues. Now, breach of contract issues will often revolve around the California Homeowner Bill of Rights in one way or another. Uh, one decision that came down somewhat recently uh, relates to uh, a situation where uh, years ago there was a modification issue, as is so often the case with modifications, there are progress payments to be made. And there is a contract uh, at issue. Now, whether the contract is fully fully signed, fully vetted, has terms that can really be uh, subject to attack, those are all, of course, evidentiary questions. Those are all legal questions. And it's going to depend on the specific case. Here, in any event, and a lot of this does relate to the Homeowner Bill of Rights. And by the way, when I say here, the case here comes out of the first appellate district up in the Bay Area. And you've got uh, some plaintiffs with the short case name Charles Taniguchi, uh, and the defendant is Restoration Homes, LLC. Now, this case was was certified for publication. It did get filed from the appellate court April 30th, 2019. So it's still somewhat recent. And the essentials of this case is it essentially uh, upheld the right to challenge the way that uh, lenders have handled the modification process in the case at issue. 
and you'll have to look at the opinion to get all the bona fides of that. Uh, as getting into the details of that is beyond the scope of this 30-minute format for this show. Nevertheless, it's an important decision, and it specifically references California Civil Code 2924C, by which those seeking to foreclose the institutional lenders in California typically, they need to have a bunch of bona fides showing that the borrower is in default, that uh, they've proved out the default, showing sufficient evidence of that. And if there's some kind of a, a situation with, as here, temporary scheduled payments, uh, progress payments related to a potential loan modification uh, that could in many cases be seen as a, an actual loan modification. Uh, you can also get a breach of contract uh, aspect to this. Now, this case was really decided more on the California Homeowner Bill of Rates itself. And remember, the California Homeowner Bill of Rates, a bunch of different sections and provisions principally you will find in the California Civil Code under sections 2923 and 2924. And whether you look at those sections in total or whether you look at specifics, the upshot of those is that lenders can't foreclose in California without doing some kind of preliminary prove-out that they not only legitimately control the note and the associated deed of trust, but that they satisfied certain notice requirements to the borrower before they foreclose. And they need to do that prior to filing a notice of default. And then once the notice of default is filed, then they need to uh, go through uh, essentially a 90-day waiting period before actually scheduling a trustee sale. And then any such trustee sale has to be scheduled 20 days later. Now, that whole architecture, of course, is, is going to remain. Those protections for borrowers are going to remain. Uh, those of you who, who, are, who have reviewed what's on today's show will know that. One of the things I'm talking about, which I'm talking about right now, is how the California Homeowner Bill of Rights it's essentially sunsetting on December 31st of this year. So we're talking literally only less than three months away. Uh, now, as usual, uh, the situation here is a little more complicated than that. But the essential provisions of the act are going to go away, including the way a number of modifieds had to be met by foreclosing institutional lenders before foreclosing. Of course, they're still going to be stuck with the notice of default procedure and the current notice of trustee sale procedure. That's not going to go away. Those protections for borrowers are still in, uh, but the notice requirements are going to be less onerous. What those are going to look like, again, that's a topic for another show. Uh, those of you who do lobby 
California State Legislature, you have an interest in lobbying politics, and now is the time to try to get these provisions reauthorized because, again, much of the entire architecture of the California Homeowner Bill of Rights is going to go away at the end of the year on December 31st. So going back to the breach of contract issue, uh, that that relates to the California Homeowner Bill of Rights because so much of the loan modification architecture is meant to be compliant with the California Homeowner Bill of Rights. So oftentimes lenders will reference the right to appeal a loan, a loan mod denial. Okay, that's that's an essential right that theoretically went away with the last major iteration of the California Bill of Rights. And that iteration came in January 2018, not quite two years ago. Now, you can read the various changes then as eliminating the right to appeal loan mod denial. Uh, the legal and practical matter is, to use that phrase again, it's more complicated than that. However, as a practical matter, the vast majority of institutional servicers have been acknowledging in California the right of loan mod appeal. In fact, they reference it specifically in their letters. Uh, so typically what will happen is a borrower will get under review, and the standard in California is they need to be under review seven days before the sale date. Now, many servicers will say they need to be under review 35, 40 days. They can pick whatever number, so they think. Nevertheless, the standard really is seven, and there's legal support for that standard in the Homeowner Bill of Rights. So that's still here even after the 2018 changes. And typically it will be referenced as the kind of uh, go-to timeline, meaning if you're going to get yourself under review, you could submit documents three days before the sale, but to really have some legal framework that you can really appeal to if you don't uh, get the servicer to acknowledge you're under review and you don't get the servicer uh, to say you're under review at least seven days after your sale, then, you know, you've got problems there. Uh, if the servicer does give you some formal confirmations, ideally that is through a letter to the borrower or to the borrower's attorney if the loan bot is being processed through a, uh, an attorney, then in that case, the, the letter to the borrower, if it has uh, a phrase or language in there that says basically, we, the servicer, will review your, your application, we'll let you know if uh, there's additional documents needed, and if you get a denial, they will often say that you have a 30-day right of appeal. Now, even if they don't say that, when you get the denial letter, I have not seen this invariably. I've not seen this in every case, but it's typical that you will get a letter from the institutional servicer that will say you have a 30-day right of appeal. 
Now, what's interesting is that while under the Homeowner Bill of Rights, that ability to use that option is, shall we say, uh, still an open question, even here a year and a half plus out from the latest iteration of the Homeowner Bill of Rights. Again, that was January 2018. But you, you've got a major breach of contract issue, and that's the one takeaway I want I want. Uh, listeners to, to, to get on that breach of contract issue. If the if the uh, servicer or the institutional lender is providing a bunch of bonafides in writing, that becomes a potential breach of contract issue in litigation. So that's all the time we have for Joe, and Neil will be back uh, next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.